Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living today with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. To ask questions or join in the discussion, email us at theyogahour at unityonlineradio.org. Now, here's your host, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, our time to open our hearts and our minds to the infinite. I'm Yogacharya O'Brien, and today we'll be mining the gems from the yoga tradition to see what it tells us about how to live in the highest way, yoga's path to living with higher purpose. And, you know, what does it mean to live in the highest way? How can the practices of yoga help us live in harmony with our own self and as well as with others? So we're going to take a look at Patanjali's Yoga Sutra to see what kind of insights and practices are recommended there to help us live our higher purpose, to live a dharmic life. And we're really blessed today for this uh, assistance on this topic of Dharmic living to have with us again on the Yoga Hour, uh, Edwin Bryant, uh, Dr. Edwin Bryant, who's a professor of Hindu religion and philosophy at Rutgers University. He teaches workshops on the Yoga Sutras and other Hindu texts uh, in yoga communities around the world. He has received numerous awards, published six books, including um, the one sitting on my desk here, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is a new edition translation and commentary with insights from the traditional commentators. So this is really a recommended text for um, all of us who are studying the Yoga Sutras. It's very uh, comprehensive. To say it's comprehensive, Edwin, I think would be uh, even uh, less than what it is. It's far even beyond comprehensive. It's a beautiful um, translation and commentary. Uh, you can find out more about Edwin's work at his website, Edwin Bryant. Dot org. Welcome, Edwin. I'm so glad you're back. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much for having me on the show. And before we uh, dive into our conversation, um, let's just take a moment for a short centering 
moment of meditation, a yoga moment. With one breath, one conscious breath, we can change our mind, open our hearts. So let's do that now. Simply be conscious of our breathing. And as we breathe in, feel that we are diving within into the infinite ocean of divine consciousness. Divine wisdom, divine bliss. And with each out breath, just relaxing and letting go. As we breathe, we can be aware of the great breath, all of life breathing this divine power and presence that is the life of our life the breath of our breath that permeates all creation and exists beyond it and as we breathe and thoughts begin to quiet down Feel that your heart is opening, your mind is opening. How beautiful to be awake and aware. And to have this opportunity in this lifetime to live with higher purpose, to know the truth of what we are, expressions of, emanations of that one reality called by many names. How beautiful to rest our awareness in the consciousness of God as our life. Let us gather up the blessings now of this yoga moment. The blessing of being awake, aware, alive in God. And let's intend to share that blessing with all that we meet today. Once again, Edwin Bryant, welcome back to the Yoga Hour. Um, We're going to be taking a look today at what is called Dharmic living, or how we live in the highest way. And we discover, um, as students of yoga, 
that we actually have a choice in the matter of how we're going to live. No matter what happens, um, there are basically two um, paths that uh, Patanjali offers us, that we can spend our time caught up in the mind and emotion and pursuing pleasure and trying to avoid pain, or we can live in a more conscious way, realizing who and what we really are, what we're here for. And, you know, it seems that in the beginning, even in the first um, pada, that we're shown that the mind can move in two directions, you know, towards the objects of the senses or towards being anchored in the self, um, which gives us a sense that um, we have this choice, um, this choice to live in a conscious way, in a higher way. Um, Edwin, let's start off with your thoughts about dharmic living, um, how you define it, and what it has to do with this choice of what we do with our attention. Um, well, well, the um, really the, the, the text that is really um, a text that focuses on dharma um, is really the Bhagavad Gita. Absolutely. So, yeah, <laughs> so will you that, come, back and we'll, <laughs> come back yeah. and we'll do that one? <laughs> sure. I mean, that's all about Dharma, and you know, in, in, which is performed in two ways. One is, you know, karma yoga, sort of action, um, duty without um, any investment in the fruits, and, and then on a higher level uh, as an offering to God. So the action of um, the Kriya Yoga in Patanjali is not really a goal unto itself. I think it's important to note that. Dharmic living, you know, the, the uh, Kriya Yoga and the Yamas and Niyamas are not goals unto themselves. They're goals that, you know, their purpose is to satisfy the mind, prepare the mind to be able to enter into a state of Nirodaha. So really the ultimate purpose, that's what a sadhana is, sadhana, or that's what a kriya is, it's, it's something that you do for some other end. So dharmic living is not a goal unto itself for Patanjali, but it's a, you know, it's a preparatory uh, set of practices. And the actual ultimate goal of itself is, 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 is basically just being, being trans-functional, not, not acting at all, being in a state of complete, uh, you know, sarupe vasthanam, where the self is, is absorbed in, it, in its own nature. But having said that, nonetheless, we, we, um, uh, we, uh, your question is, what is the, what is the purpose of, of dharmic living? If we live dharmically, and there's two ways of living dharmically, remember. There's, there's karma. To, to live dharmically is karma. But karma yoga is not just to live dharmically, but to, but to perform one's dharma without attachment to the results. Those are two different things. So in the, in the greater Indian tradition, if you do your dharma, even if you are attached to the results, you, you know, you, there'll be prosperity and health and sort of the good things of life. That, you know, dharma, artha, karma, moksha. What do you get from dharma? You get artha, you get well-being. And then from well-being, what do you get from that karma? You get the satisfaction of the senses. And then eventually one gets frustrated with that and seeks moksha. So just dharmic living then is one thing. But the Gita comes along and says, okay, do that dharma. Um, but if you do it without attachment to the results, then uh, then you can attain that same goal that Patanjali is talking about. Mm-hmm. So, um, so so therefore, there's different levels of dharma. On the on the lowest level, it's just if we act righteously, even if we're in ignorance, even if we're under avidya, under asmita, and still subject to the kleshas and ragadvesha. But nonetheless, if we channel those kleshas into a lifestyle that's dharmic, then there'll be some kind of material well-being. 
Um, but, uh, but of course, the Gita is going to say ultimately, and Patanjali says, you know, sarvam dukkam. Actually, any kind of material well-being, at some point, as one becomes more sattvic, that even material you know, well-being is going to become dissatisfying in some sort of way. And therefore, the Gita, the Gita speaks of, um, uh, do, you know, giving up attachment to the results and, and mm-hmm. so forth. And Patanjali mm-hmm. speaks of, of, of going to a place beyond well-being or not well-being, you know, sukha mm-hmm. and dukkha. But no, maybe, I was, I, maybe I didn't really answer your question very. No, very, no, uh, I think it was great. I think it was great. You gave us really a lot of things to think about, and uh, I was just kind of pulling out some gems from uh, what you were saying. And the first time I have ever heard someone say "satvasize," mm, that's uh, a nice term, which, isn't it? It's a really nice term. Did you make yeah. that up? I guess so, yeah. Just kind of like blending <laughs> blending Sanskrit with English grammar. It's really nice. That's so, so, so tell, because I think, you know, of course, um, yeah, Patanjali is, is all about that, um, right? And this, um, uh, to, to understand that what we do with yama and niyama and, and, you know, and meditation, of course, it's not... Um, for its own sake, we don't meditate just to become better meditators. We we do meditate, as you say, to satvasize the mind. So, could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, how the um, practices that we have in yoga are for um, creating or supporting a more sattvic uh, mental field, and um, how does that work, and why is it important? Yeah, but let's be, let's remember though that that satvisization is is indispensable, but it's not that that too is not the ultimate goal. Uh, in Krishna exactly. says in the Gita, even even sattva even binds, it actually binds by happiness and well-being and contentment. When we become very very sattvic, we become content, we become happy, and we actually become very wise and knowledgeable and insightful. And, it, and it's easy to get trapped there. Mm-hmm. People respect us, and, and it's easy to get stuck. So it's also a bind. In the, in the yeah. specific about that. Yeah. Um, Paramahansa, and I understand. Excuse me. I understand. Paramahansa Yogananda um, and told my guru that you know even some saints um, were yeah. content to stay there, to stay there with sure. the bliss, right? Yeah. You know, the bliss without going for moksha. Just, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and Patanjali so, also, if we want to talk about Patanjali, I think it's verse 119, he talks about two kinds of, of uh, beings, you know, the Prakriti Layanams and the Videhas, who get stuck in very, very high, high, extremely reified sattvic states of consciousness. And they think they are, the commentaries say they think they have attained moksha. Mm-hmm. But they get kind of, um, but they get stuck there. So... Mm-hmm. But to go back to your question, so um, we have in the Kriya Yogas, the, and Patanjali starts off that chapter with Kriya Yoga, and he, he identifies three things, which surface again, you know, later on in the chapter in the Niyamas. And the first is, we want to make the mind sattvic. Now, what does that mean metaphysically? All right, we have three mm-hmm. things. We have sattva, rajas, this is physics, this is subtle physics, and we have tamas. The mind is a physical entity. It's made of property, nothing spiritual about it. So therefore, it is made of, it, 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 inherent within it, it has sattva potential, rajas potential, and tamas potential. So if for any type of yoga practice, we need to maximize the sattva. So the first thing we have to do, if we're going to maximize sattva, then we're maximizing at, at the expense of rajas and tamas. So we need to decrease rajas, especially rajas, but also tamas, because raga, actually, the word raga, which is the klesha, is the same, mm-hmm. comes from the same Sanskrit root as rajas, which is raj. Mm-hmm. Mm. So therefore, the first of the three kriyas is tapaha, 
And tapaha is nothing other than to start to control the, the rajas, to start to control the senses, to start to you know, monitor how much one is eating, when one is eating, how much one is sleeping, what one is doing with one's mind, you know, watching TV, not watching TV. Depending on when, where one is at, one starts to, perform, to control, starts to become aware of um, rajasic lifestyle choices and starts to control them. That's tapas. There is no, in the Indian traditions, in any of the moksha traditions, there is no serious yoga path without tapas. And I know in the West we like to jettison that. We want to sort of have our cake and eat it too. Um, and that's the part that, you know, typically uh, people uh, compromise. Uh, but it is the, the first word in the second chapter. The first mm-hmm. word of the whole chapter is tapaha. Mm-hmm. So that then yeah, and I think it's interesting, you know, when you talk about we start there with controlling rajas. And I was thinking that, you know, there's some teachings that indicate that, I mean, we do have to work with um, Thomas Guna from time to time. But I think we can say um, generally those who come to the path of yoga um, have overcome a certain amount of um, tamas guna in order to get there. <laughs> you know, the ones who are sure. ready for meditation. And yeah. so principally the thing they're going to be dealing with is rajas. And time to time, uh, Thomas, but but mostly um, rajas. So please go ahead. Sure. So we have yeah, this. But tamas, is, tamas as well. I mean, of course, we need to have a certain amount of tamas and a certain amount of rajas because without tamas, there'd be no sleep. There'd be no rest. And without rajas, you couldn't even blink an eyelid. So any kind of movement or activity is rajas. But the yogic lifestyle is that sattva is determining how much rajas and tamas are needed for embodied existence. Sattva is making that call. Whereas in a rajasic lifestyle, rajas is making that call. And rajas is really interested in, you know, what feels good and immediate sort of uh, fruits and is not, is not concerned with long-term consequences. And tamas is just not really very interested in anything at all. It, you know, it tends to be you know, <laughs> depression and laziness and sloth and so forth. So there has to be some rajas. There's no sense, you know, you can't just be 100% sattva except in the very, very final, the, you know, the samadhi states. But other mm-hmm. than that... Any time, any other type of embodied existence. Uh, so, but so the goal of the, li- of the yogic lifestyle is to maximize sattva. There's no such thing as too much sattva. There is a such thing as too much rajas and too much tamas. Mm-hmm. Those those would be negative for the spiritual goals. But but the, but there's no such thing as too much sattva. So therefore, the first step then is to begin to monitor rajas so that sattva can replace it. So that's the first of the kriyas. And then the second is, okay, so on the one hand, we're kind of starting to control our desires um, and our, you know, the destructive kind of tendencies, those that we know, that we know causes harm and frustration. So that's tapas. But the second thing is we need to replace it with something. And svadhyaya is an excellent way of doing this because the mind has to be, there has to be samskaras in the mind. So if we're starting to control our rajasic samskaras, our desires for frivolous and, and trivial and even dangerous things. If we're starting to control that, what are we going to replace it with? You know, the mind has to be active unless it's in deep sleep or as, unless it's in a high samadhi state, but the rest of the time it has to be active. What's it going to be thinking about? The Svajaya is an excellent way of filling the mind with the study of sacred texts and mantras, an excellent way of filling the mind with not just sattvic, but, but, but you know, transcendent thoughts um, and 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 so forth. So, Svajaya mm-hmm. is a really, really important part of the spiritual journey. 
In other words, instead of watching TV or some nonsense on the on the telly, one can pick up the Yoga Sutras or the Bhagavad Gita or any of the Moksha texts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, we're just having a course now on the on the Gita, and uh, in in an hour, you know, we're reading the Mahabharata. And these are wonderful mm-hmm. stories that where mm-hmm. we have sort of yoga philosophy woven into these incredible narratives, which are very entertaining to the mind, mm-hmm. but nonetheless full of wisdom. So that's the second component of Kriya Yoga is Svajaya, right? We The first is control Rajas. The second is we replace it with something. What do we replace it with? Wisdom sayings, the wisdom teachings from the sacred text. And the third thing then is, Patanjali is a theistic tradition. There is Ishra. Patanjali does accept Ishra. Let's be clear about what Ishra means in the third century and throughout the history of Indian philosophy. It, it doesn't mean a paradigmatic yogi. It doesn't mean all the things people trying to try to render it as meaning in the modern world. It means God. And there's actually <laughs> people, it means a supreme being that is beyond the Atman. I don't, you know, we're all sort of running away. I'm laughing because I've, you know, ever since I started teaching, I've been on a campaign to try to redeem God in our culture, you know, um, because we're running away from, we're running away from our Abrahamic traditions and we sort of, you know, we head east because then we think, oh, you know, there's no, you know, there's less institutionalization and less hierarchy and blah, 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 blah. And then we see the Sishwar and Patanjali. And we think, oh, God, no, not again. <laughs> Here he is again. Right. But Ishvara does mean a, a supreme being. And, um, you know, the most, most Hindu traditions, not all, but most uh, Hindu yeah. traditions um, are bhakti traditions. Mm-hmm. And so in, in, the, in, these, in these traditions, then, um, in addition to one's own kind of tapas, the first, and svadhyaya, then there's also grace that can be received from a, a being beyond ourselves. And by engaging in bhakti or Ishvara Pranidhana, which you know the commentators call bhakti vishesha, a t- certain type of bhakti, then the mind also becomes not just sattvicized but also devotionalized. And and mm-hmm. the result of all of this is that one begins to lose interest in 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 the foolish things of this world and become attracted to these higher the higher pursuit of of self awareness and devotion. And this, all of this is um, the path really for the cultivation of sattva and uh, and then ultimately beyond. I mean, even as you say, we don't want to get stuck in sattva and the purpose of it, as I understand it, is to, um, you know, purify the body and the mind, um, preparing us for that ultimate realization. Yeah. Um, yeah, and if we don't, and if we don't feel that we need to do tapas, or then why are we doing a yoga path? If we are happy and life is all hunky dory and we're skipping through the roses, then we don't need a spiritual path. It's we only take the, to the spiritual path when we realize that we're, we're frustrated in some sort of way, or we want to improve ourselves in some sort of a way. Then we then we take to a path. I mean, why would one take to a path unless one wants to go somewhere other than where one is? Mm-hmm. And so, some awareness of dukkham is mm-hmm. indispensable and it, and mm-hmm. that's why it's the first the first truth of buddhism it's the first step mm-hmm. 
And it does seem to be, um, for most people, I mean, certainly in my experience and most people that I know, um, suffering or a sense of, um, and it may not be acute suffering, it might just be a sense of something missing in life. Sure. Um, it seems to be the number one motivator that brings people to the path. I, I know the teachings say that, you know, devotees come, you know, suffering can be top of the list, um, searching for wisdom can be there, and also love for God can be there, but um, most that I meet uh, come through that that door of suffering, and um, it seems that it doesn't really take long if a, a person is dedicated on the path of, of yoga um, to find some relief from that. Do you think that's true? Uh, absolutely true, um, because as soon as one starts to do a little tapas and then cultivate and then and in its place kind of sattva starts to emerge the nature of ha- of sattva is the, when krishna in the gita describes what are the what are the symptoms of the gunas he talks about well the symptom of rajas is constant suffering is is never fulfilled it's always mm-hmm. hankering i mean look at mm-hmm. well look at our president elect i mean someone <laughs> like that who's who is never never ever going to be satisfied right that's pure pure rajas but that's, whereas that's, nature, that's duryodhana right maybe i'm not supposed to say that on the air but that but, <laughs> but you know but that's that's a, that's a that's a an example of of pure unfulfillable rajas that's the mm-hmm. nature of rajas. Whereas sattva, you know, the, in the definitions given in the Gita is contentment and happiness. So the, the minute, as you say, very quickly, I remember when I first moved into an ashram back in 1979, mm. and I was so ready, and I, I was still smoking, you know, cigarettes, and I was disgusted <laughs> with myself, and I, and I was, you know, just didn't have good, clean habits. And I was partly aware, I wasn't fully aware, but I was partly aware of my condition, and I was just, and then moving into an ashram, of course, gives you an opportunity overnight, basically. You, know, you mm-hmm. shave your head, you change your clothes, you get a new name. And almost instantly, uh, there was relief and, uh, and happiness and contentment. And, th- and those are the symptoms of, of sattva. Yeah, I so, I found that too when I came onto the path. It was this sort of, you know, like a like a fish diving in water, and I found, you know, it lifted me up immediately. And then, of course, I discovered, as do many sadhakas, then then there's work to do <laughs> after yeah, that after yeah. that initial uplift. So we're gonna sure. um, take a break now, and okay. and when we come back, um, we we can talk more about the foundations um, for dharmic living. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with our special guest today, Edwin Bryant, Professor of Hindu Religion and Philosophy at Rutgers University. You can find out more about his work at edwinbryant.org. We'll be back with you in just a few minutes. Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. We are all on the journey together. Making sense of this life, finding our spirituality, growing and evolving. As we travel through this world, Unity Magazine is your resource for gaining a deeper understanding of life. 
Unity Magazine is on the forefront of spiritual discovery with articles and features from leading authors, teachers, and philosophers. Stimulate your thinking and strengthen your spirituality with Unity Magazine. Sample a free trial issue or subscribe today at unitymagazine.org. What if you were intentional about your life, committed to having more energy and being more vibrant? Join Reverend Temple Hayes, spiritual leader of First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, as she guides you on a journey to an intentional and energetic life. Empower your life and fully express the wondrous energy, love, and joy you hold in your wildest imagining. Joyfully and actively know that more important than what happens after you die is the deeper and enriching concern for what happens while you're living. How can you experience an incredible life right now? Learn how each week on The Intentional Spirit. Seeing and Being, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central Time, right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Listening to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. We now return to the Yoga Hour. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Yogacharya O'Brien, and my guest today is Edwin Bryant, professor of Hindu religion and philosophy at Rutgers University. And um, we're drawing, of course, some wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita. He's a scholar of the Gita, um, just because we're talking about dharmic living today, and that is really um, the ultimate guide for dharmic living. But we also see that Patanjali had some things to say uh, about dharmic living, and so we're drawing from his latest book, um, The Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, uh, a new edition, translation, and commentary. So in this... Um, Segment, Edwin. Let's let's talk about um, these foundational tools of dharmic living. I mean, besides meditation, which we learn about in the first pada, and we get into the second one, and we start looking at you know the how to live section, and we have the uh, yamas and niyamas, and so um, you know starting with uh, ahimsa, and uh, we were talking in the first section about. Uh, I'm going to use your word now forever, sattvasizing our mind and our life. And it seems that, you know, ahimsa in terms of, okay, how do you take that into the world um, is a primary tool for that. Um, it seems very intentional to me that the list starts with ahimsa. What is your take on that? Yeah, it's it's intentional. It's also, it's also a kind of a literary... It, it's acknowledged in, in, in literature, uh, in the Sanskrit literature, that when you have a list... The first members of the list carry more weight. It's the same mm-hmm. in English, right? Like mm-hmm. if you say, if you said something sure. like, you know, Obama and his bodyguards and his driver entered the room, you wouldn't say the driver and the bodyguards and Obama entered the room. It would sound mm-hmm. odd. So you put the first. So likewise in Sanskrit. So the the, the first uh, items on the list and also the last ones 
There's six principles of how to interpret a sacred text, and that's one of them, that introductory statements and beginning, you know, first words carry more weight. So mm-hmm. ahimsa is enormously important. It's the first step. And let's be clear, though, about what it means. It does mean vegetarianism. There's no wriggling out of that. It means nonviolence to all living entities. I mean, that's just assumed. It's, it's barely even discussed. It's just it's obvious. Um, just and you, what do you find? What do you find with your students as you talk about this um, vegetarianism? I, I find this sort of tremendous um, pushback. I mean, sometimes it's talked about. Sometimes it's just like... I don't know, held in secret, but it seems that in the U.S., uh, even the yoga students have difficulty changing their diets. Do, do you experience that? Um, I, I, I think most, a lot of the yoga, I mean, a lot of the yoga studios, it's mixed, you know, but there, mm-hmm. but there are, I do find um, there are plenty of vegetarians out there, not as much as in my home country, the U.K., mm-hmm. where you know, animal rights movement have been very successful in, in bringing issues to the attention of the public. But what I tell my students at Rutgers, I tell them a couple of things, uh, which I think are powerful, powerful tools, and they work. I, you know, like we have a class, like this semester, I have 130 students in Hindu Phil, and when we get to this, we will be in a couple of weeks getting get to, the, to these verses. I always say this, this. I, I look at them, and I, I look out at the students, and I say, okay, who amongst you could look an animal in the eye and cut its throat? And out of about 130 students, I'm, I usually get one or two that will put their hand up. Mm-hmm. And I say, look, okay, at least I respect you. At least you, you know, you are taking responsibility for what, for what you're eating. That's it. But the rest mm-hmm. of you, what is it that prevents you? You need to check in that high, that whatever it is. If it was a natural thing to do, it should be a natural thing to do, like going to the bathroom. Nobody has moral doubts about going to the bathroom. But if you're not able to look an animal in the, eye, in the eye and kill it, then there's something that's that voice inside of you that's preventing that, maybe what the Christians call the, the conscience, is mm-hmm. your, your sattvic. You need to check in with that, not avoid that, and mm-hmm. really engage this. Why, why is it that you're not able to? What is it that's wrong with this, if, it, if indeed it is an, you know, a natural thing to do? So that I, I, is a pretty powerful, that gets students thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it would, and did you say there were two things? What was the other thing? Well, the other thing is I, you know, I sort of follow the Jain approach, the Jains, where they, they, you know, which of course taken the principle of ahimsa further than anyone in recorded literary history, anyway. And they say, look, you don't just believe something is written in some Sanskrit text. Observe, observe the animals. Observe, do they not experience fear? Do they not experience love? Do they not respond to affection? Do they not, you know, try to avoid suffering? Observe them. They're not objects. They're not inanimate. Really observe them and then ask yourself the question, why? Why do you need to, you know, cause suffering to another living entity? For what reason? So the arguments for vegetarianism in in the West now are primarily, you know, they are compassion for some people, but mostly it's environmental, it's health, it's kind of actually selfish. They're actually selfish reasons. It's economic, right? If we, we mm-hmm. didn't have a cow industry, we could feed the whole world. It's, you know, we're chopping down the, the rainforest to grow soy. These are all environmental or health-based. The arguments in ancient India were not self-centered like that. They were compassion-based. They were like, you know, observe the animals. Don't they experience suffering? 
Um, yeah, and it so that's seems a high, you know, that, that's a, yeah. yeah. I was going to say it seems that you know when we look at this foundation of dharmic living and waking up, if we start with this, and we really include that very basic thing, you know, what we do to nurture, to feed ourselves, yeah. and it's about coming into the relationship with the self as the self of all. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that is a very, that is the foundation of the spiritual life. You know, that sure. we're not, we're not separate from other beings. We're, Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's a, and, and, and to get out of our sleep state about that, you know, I, I had to do that when I came to the path of yoga. I was not a vegetarian. And, right. um, and it, and and I don't believe, you know, in telling people they have to just do that overnight. I think they have to explore. They certainly have to come in right relationship with their own body to do it. And it's better if it happens in a natural way, you know, out of your yeah. own um, awareness, you know. And for yeah. me, it was just things things fell away. But I I went into this as a as an investigation, you know, like I. The first one to go was beef, and it came from looking at a cow. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly and that. yeah, so finding that I had commonality. Yeah, yeah, well, and that I also had um, picked up some ideas, you know, maybe from the culture. I don't know that cows were were stupid. They were, you know, um, yeah. it was horrible when I. <laughs> came to terms with what I had thought about this beautiful being, which of course in Hinduism is the symbol of giving everything, right? Absolutely. Um, And so that was a horrible revelation for me. And then I just, you know, that that just went, but it went from the inside, you know, not like somebody saying I shouldn't do it. It was an experience that I had. And then the next thing was was chicken, you know, and it was like, I think because I was continuing that um, uh, investigation, I just lost the taste, the taste went away. Yeah. And then uh, fish was the last, and and that was discovering, as you say, that you know um, fish have feelings. I didn't know yeah. that fish had had feelings. There, sure. There's a new book out somebody has written about fish, all about fish having feelings. It was very interesting. I, I mean, it should it was, be obvious from looking at their faces when they're flopping about and gasping, <laughs> and you know when they're pulled out of the ocean. I mean, isn't that obvious that they're absolutely tormented? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we cho- if we choose. If we choose to look at it that way, and I think mm-hmm. our job as yoga teachers is not—it's not you know thou shalt this and thou shalt not that because obviously this is not a time in human history in the West where we we, we like the imperative tense. Um, but I think it's our job as yoga teachers to to point this out to people, just to get just to say to them, look, observe, just observe mm-hmm. the animals for yourself. Come to your own awareness. Come to your own realization. Look an animal in the eye. Do you not see there's a fellow living entity there? And then ask yourself, is it okay if I kill it? And then if you can't do that, then on what moral grounds is it okay to have somebody else do it for you? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a very, it's a very strong um, conversation to have with ourselves yeah. as, as we begin the path of yoga. And then, of course, when we come to the um, the second yama second restraint is truthfulness and they're you know those two are bound together right and so really what we're talking about here is is a very basic step with the himsa of non-harming um and being truthful about it right i mean that's what i see in your approach you're saying truthful about everything not not just about violence but about life and and just our behavior and our 
conversations with others and just being truthful, yes. Yeah. It's very, very powerful. It is. What do you think about, you know, that it, (laughs) that it is true that um, most of us uh, lie all the time? I mean, that's what I found when I started practicing that. It's like, oh, Oh my goodness! You know yeah. this. Um, uh, we just do, and of course, studies have yeah. shown that people do that. So, sure. uh, how how do you encourage people to practice in the face of <laughs> being loose lipped by nature? Just, just to become aware, you know, the more sattvic, the nature of sattva is truthfulness, and Thomas and Thomas tends to be lying, and Rajas too. But the more we become sattvic, the more we, you know, do our practices, the more sattva develops, the more we become aware of lying. The first thing is to become aware, because if lying is normative, well, that's normative means. It's normal. We're not, we don't think of it. It's like eating meat. We don't think of it. It's just food. We don't think of it as a living entity. So likewise, we lie all the time. It's normative. Then it's just, you know, the, it's the status quo. So the first step is to become aware. And then mm-hmm. once we become aware, then the tapas. Then the tapas says, mm-hmm. okay, let me start to control this. Let me start to monitor this. Let me start to not be subject to this. Let, mm-hmm. me, let me regain control over my mind. Um, mm-hmm. and, those, and, that, and that, of course, is the satya. That's the practice. And isn't it interesting, these times that we're living in in the U.S. that have um, such a perversion of truth you know we have this whole this I mean, fake we've even, news we've even absolutely we've even reached a point where i'm sorry to interrupt you no no i was just going to so say we've that even reached a point I, I where read, we've coined this i'm sorry go ahead no i was going to say i read that the that the word of the year that they yeah it's um, post-truth they, post-truth i mean yeah. isn't that isn't that yeah so for our listeners post-truth as they define it is is um basically um an interpretation of something you know after it has happened right and that is not accurate um and that that's the word of the year that has entered our lexicon um so you know if we look at it you know through the lens of yoga we could certainly say this is uh Rajas Guna, it's Thomas Guna, and um, beyond, you know, just being uh, aghast at it, uh, how, what can we do with our own practice to counter just being in a constant state of upset about fake news and post-truth? Well, we just need to become saints, actually. We need to become saints. What does that mean? We, that, and that's a term coming out of the Christian tradition, saint. But in, our, in the yoga traditions, it means to become sattvic. When we do that, and what is the boon of ahimsa? That if we really are situated in a place of ahimsa and satya, people that come in into contact with us, that are, call, it, call it the aura if you want to you know, use the... The term that Christians use, and you go to the Metropolitan Museum and see all the medieval art, and there's these golden auras around the saints. That's just sattva permeating out, and that sattva enters into the minds of others. And the Patanjali says that if one is really situated in, you know, the ahimsa, then anyone coming into 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 the vicinity of such a person, that their own sattvic potential becomes triggered. Mm-hmm. Which means that they become their their animosity, their rajas, their tamas becomes becomes curtailed, and and their and and they experience a state of sattva just by being in the presence of a saint, meaning someone that's very sattvic. So what can we do? Our goal is to become not the ultimate goal, but the certainly the the part of our process is to become sattvic, and it's by that 
that we will influence you know whatever our little our little kshetra our little field of activity is whether it's students whether it's our family whatever it is if we become sattvic um, it's not through ideology it's not through theology it's not not, not through debate it's just through becoming sattvic that we will then um, cause others uh, mm-hmm. we, we will encourage the sattva that's inherent in other beings to also become activated. So that's mm-hmm. the goal. St- yeah. I, I started a, a campaign this week, um, which we're going to um, focus on tomorrow, which is to inaugurate peace, um, to take this time of the inauguration and make it our own inauguration, our own commitment um, that we're going to do exactly what you're saying, that mm-hmm. we will inaugurate peace and think about what it means to inaugurate peace and how we do that. And really, we, we I, I think we could say we're going to satrasize. <laughs> we're going to bring that um, to the forefront. And just as you say, you know, to bring that light then into the public discourse um, and to not get caught up in the uh, rajasic tangle of it all or the tamasic um, pull but to um, to bring forth the light and it seems that the boon um, of truthfulness as I understand it is a kind of creative power being able to tap into uh, that divine energy within us how do you how do you describe the boon of satya of satyam um and what does potentially say? Can you remind me? So from satyam comes the fruition of the fruition of activity. Of, you said uh, something and like of that. our of our speech, the, of our, our word, speech, but our word is power. Yeah, has power. I mean, this you know, the, it's it's interesting because the commentaries on this particular section of the Yoga Sutras don't actually have a lot to say about these ten boons that are associated, they, except for ahimsa. They speak a lot about ahimsa and brahmacharya. But you know, uh, my understanding of satyam is that if we're really truthful. People trust us. And if they trust mm-hmm. us, they, they have faith in us. And therefore, if we're in positions of authority, our word carries power. Um, I think that's probably the problem with the democratic system. Mm-hmm. Uh, politicians, can, you know, they have to get votes. They have to say any damn thing. They have to say different <laughs> things for each constituency so that they get those votes. And so it's expected that there's a difference between what one... We've, we've, it's become normative that what one says on the campaign trail and what one actually does. But if one actually um, is truthful, people trust one. And we all want leaders. We want to be able to trust leaders, whether they're, you know, business leaders or political leaders or spiritual leaders. But we, but they have to be honest. We have to be able to mm-hmm. feel that we can trust mm-hmm. what they say. So that's how I, I understand the second yama, that if we are mm-hmm. completely and utterly situated, uh, you know, not just formally, but in our minds, and that's doing what you said before, you know, really starting mm-hmm. to monitor our our, our t- tendency that, uh, to, to lie, that maybe we, mm-hmm. you know, come from our tamasic past. If we really start to become mm-hmm. situated in truthfulness, people will trust us. If they trust us, then we can lead. Those of us yeah, who, you exactly. know, are leaders and, in, in some small right. way. Right, and I, you know, I'm looking now at your uh, translation of it, um, which you have written. When one is established in truthfulness, one ensures the fruition of actions. And then you say the commentators understand this sutra as indicating that the words of a truthful person invariably bear fruit. Fala. Yeah. So, um, so that's it. Is is and you know, our, I think it's 
it's understanding actually that words have power. They do. And could I just interject, because we're, um, we're studying the Mahabharata, we're reading it for the next three weeks. Uh, it's amazing how, and this is a warrior text, it's Kshatriyas, actually. It's not, it's not so much for the Brahmins, you know, the, the, the Moksha texts are for the Brahmins. So the, the two epics are really for the warrior caste. But it's amazing how seriously they took truthfulness. They would mm-hmm. never, never, the worst thing was to be caught lying you know, and to be dishonored. That dishonor was the worst thing for the warrior. You know, to the point when the Pandavas, you know, Arjuna brings Draupadi back home that, he, that you know, he just won her hand in marriage. <laughs> he comes with his five brothers and, he, and his mom doesn't look up. She's in the kitchen. She doesn't see. And he says, Mom, I brought something home. And she says, <laughs> well, whatever it is, share it. And just the fact that she said that, you, that, that that statement could not be violated, and, they, and that's how Draupadi end up, ends up having five husbands. <laughs> but the point being, and you see this in the epic, and it's not just the Indian epics, you also see it in the other Indo-European epics, the Greek epics and the Scandinavian epics. When someone gave their word, even as recently as, you know, the British gentleman is as good as his word, you know, in the colonial period, this idea of truthfulness was, was, was really, uh, was fundamental to... Um, to a person's honor and, and sense of self. You know, we're losing that. We're losing mm-hmm. that. We're losing mm-hmm. it in our political system. I, you know, in some ways, democracy is, encourage, is encouraging that loss. But anyway, mm. so that's taking us a bit too far afield. But, um, well, you know, I think it's a, topic, it's a topic on everybody's mind right now. Yeah, um, yeah. What it, what it means to be truthful and how we can bring truthfulness um, back into the discourse and why it's so important, you know, that we that we do that, as you say, establishing trust. Um, but I think also for us as, um, as yogis, as spiritual practitioners, is to understand um, the sattvic nature of truth and how, you know, when we when we lie there's a beautiful it's a beautiful line by um tim harden a musician from years ago who 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 wrote um you upset the grace of living when you lie huh. and uh isn't that beautiful um yeah. because it 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 says to me that you know truthfulness is a way that we stay attuned you know to the higher yes. self yes. and um and and that's why the words have power because they then do. you know that grace can that grace can uh come through us um so we're, we're we're reaching the end of our time together, and um, I, I do hope that we'll have another opportunity to um, dive into the Bhagavad Gita, maybe even the Mahabharata, because um, these texts are so rich with um, really dharmic, <laughs> exactly dharmic living. Um, so before we conclude, um, Edwin, would you maybe just um, tell us? Um, what 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 could you say? How could you? What would you say to encourage someone to take up the path of dharmic living? You know, why would they um, pick up their bow and go for it? <laughs> well, I would just say to be aware and and to realize that when we don't live dharmically, then um, we, we're not happy. You know, whether that's gross suffering or just a more subtle sense of what you were referring to, a kind of unfulfillment or malaise, um, just to start to, be, to pay attention and be okay with that. Our, you know, to actually to, to recognize that we're suffering in, in the Yoga Sutras, the first, uh, the first time we, uh, Patanjali uses the word viveka, wisdom, 
Remember Viveka is why do we do the eight limbs of go of why do we do the um, eight limbs of yoga? It's it's to develop Viveka. But the first time um, he uses the word is is to recognize that Sarvam Dukkan, that you know I, I I'm in a constant state of 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 a frustration, and to be okay with that. Our modern society. Um, you know, we'll put that down and say, oh, you know, we, we have to posture to the world that everything's okay, that everything's fine, because otherwise people will say we're depressed or we should be taking medication or whatever it is. It's okay to acknowledge that one is unfulfilled, provided one doesn't just stay there. Mm-hmm. If it stays in that place, then that is depression. Mm-hmm. But if one uses that wisdom, what Patanjali specifically calls wisdom, what the Buddha calls a noble truth, if we use that as a springboard then to, you know, to investigate yoga more deeply, to svadhyaya, that means svadhyaya, that's what it is, investigation, read the sacred texts, and then, you know, do, and there is some tapas, there is discipline, there is, it's not just, you know, it's not hunky, there is some, there is some austerity to be performed. Um, So I would urge people to be, be honest with themselves, right, because we're usually Mm -hmm. not honest with the world, and, and recognize uh, uh, our unfulfillment, and then consider the possibility of going deeper into our, our into a spiritual exploration. Mm, thank you. It's a beautiful, beautiful encouragement. Right, um, uh, starting with the truth. You know, looking at what it is that's bringing us to the path, um, yeah. and taking that step forward with uh, dharmic living. It's been yeah. a really a joy to talk with you again, uh, Edwin. And so I want to remind our listeners: you can find out more about Edwin Bryant. Uh, at his website, which is just edwinbryant.org. He's a professor of Hindu religion and philosophy at Rutgers University. And uh, if you're like me from the conversation, you know, we kind of wish we were all in your class today, Edwin. It's been great, um, very rich and inspiring. Um, And I want to invite you to uh, join me next week. Um, Rod Stryker is going to be back with me. He's the founder of Para Yoga and author of The Four desires, creating a life of purpose, happiness, prosperity, and freedom. So we're going to continue this conversation about dharmic living. I want to remind you that the Yoga Hour is a seva project, a service project of Center for Spiritual Enlightenment Meditation Center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. To find out more about CSE, you can go to csecenter.org and there you'll find some information about the uh, Dharma Studies program that we're offering now it's a year-long uh, website uh, web-based program so you can click on that find out about Dharma 365 how to have uh, everyday support for living a Dharmic life I want to thank our yoga hour team uh, assistant producer and regular guest host dr. Laurel Trujillo uh, as well as Nita Kenyon and Ann Hayes and Jeff comfort who's right there in the sound room at unity and unity online radio for making this program possible. Uh, thank you so much uh, again, Edwin, for being with us, and I look forward to our next conversation. And for our listeners, um, remember to sattvasize your life and let that inner light and peace and joy shine into the world. Lift and and lift people up with your divine self. Thank you all. Appreciate being with you. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. 
Join us every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific for practical, purposeful methods for spiritually conscious living every day. The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by friends and members of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California, a ministry in the tradition of Kriya Yoga, the ancient science of self and God realization, www.csecenter.org. Request free literature by writing info at csecenter.org. Like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. It's been said that the way to build a peaceful world is one person at a time. Think about it. Haven't we all been in situations where one person's attitude, his or her state of mind and way of being, had a profound effect on everyone in the group? We may have seen times when the effect was negative, caused by gossip or backbiting. But we've all seen times where one person changed an environment in a positive way. By maintaining a friendly attitude of goodwill toward everyone, he or she gradually influenced more and more members of the group to do the same. Before long, the positive attitude became the norm. Peace began with one person. I look for opportunities to be that person. Peace can begin with me. To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on a Course in Miracles, with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free, every Friday at 2 p.m. Central, here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. 
These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. 